This podcast is brought to you by Rick Snyder, the author of a new book entitled Decisive Intuition. Use your gut instincts to make smart business decisions. Please listen to podcast number 716, where Rick and Greg discuss the benefits of developing your intuition to help you in making better decisions. Rick's book presents three foundational principles that are changing the landscape of business and our human potential. That intuition is connected to a deeper intelligence that intuition can be learned and that applying intuition to business along with critical thinking skills can create a distinct advantage. Please listen to podcast number 716 to learn more about the power of your intuition and the obstacles that prevent you from accessing your intuition. If you want to learn more about Rick's book, please go to www.invisible-edgellc.com backslash book. We hope you enjoy this interview with Rick Snyder about his new book, Decisive Intuition. And as always, thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Charles, as I do every time, I want to thank my listeners from around the world. Over 14 years and 714 podcasts later, I'm still doing this and I'm still reaching out to people helping them learn and learn the wisdom from authors. And joining us today from Oxford is Charles Kahn. And Charles is the author of a brand new Wiley book called Bulletproof Problem Solving, The One Skill That Changes Everything. Charles, good day to you, or I should say good afternoon to you. Uh, Good day to you too, Greg, and uh, very nice to meet you. Well, very nice to meet you as well. And I might add for my listeners that this book has a co-author too, Robert McLean. Robert couldn't be with us today, but obviously he was instrumental in the development of this book as well. And is uh, is he your partner in the business? Uh, Rob was actually my partner in McKinsey many years ago, but we stayed in touch because we both have common interests uh, in problem solving and in particularly working in the environment space. Well, it's uh, it's really interesting. You know, your book touches on a lot of things, and um, I know it was a long journey to get here because I've written a couple of books myself, so I know how long it takes. <clears throat> and you mentioned, and I agree with you, that the great problem solving has never been more important in business and society today. Um, I'm an advocate of mind mapping. I'm an advocate of all of the some of the techniques that you're using and you talk about inside of this book and sketch noting as well. And everybody's trying to find some techniques and ways they can help to solve problems and bring together teams. And you say that speed and consistent change has always been, has always been and is now more of a problem and new opportunities for problem solving. Um, what do you define as problem solving to be? And what do problem solvers of today need to evolve into doing to become better problem solvers? Yeah, in in the book, we define problem solving as decision-making where complexity and uncertainty rule out obvious answers and where there's real consequences to the decisions. And so um, we we move it out of the trivial space, but we do like to include a pretty big, big set of problems. I think a lot of problem solving books focus only on business problems. And our view is that we should be thinking about ways of solving problems in our personal lives and as, as citizens of society more broadly. So our view is that we can think of problem solving as a bigger field than just cracking business problems. Mm-hmm. The issue that I think um, is in front of us today is how quickly things are changing. 
So there was a time, you know, and particularly in our parents' generation, uh, where you could study a body of knowledge, whether you did that at high school or you did it in graduate school, and you could apply that body of knowledge over the course of a career. So you would be problem solving, but you'd be problem solving using the techniques you learned in accounting or medicine or law, for example. Today, the rate of change has, has rendered that way of thinking really inoperative. Um, because of revolutions in, um, in the internet revolution, revolution in biotechnology, and increasing change um, across the economy, so automation, artificial intelligence, very few people born today will be able to do the same career over time. So the critical skill is not learning a body of knowledge from the past, but learning how to crack the problems as they come up today. And if you look at the firms where growth is, so those are jobs that are both cognitive and non-routine, those are jobs that prize problem solving. Mm-hmm. And our book is, is meant to be a very straightforward way for people to build the kind of skills that will help them in their jobs, in their lives, and as voting citizens. Well, you know, one of the things that you talk about in this skill and that, that there are top skills to develop for 2020. Um, and they're complex problem solving and critical thinking and creativity. And um, we lost a really great leader in that area just recently from England, uh, Tony Buzan, and, and, and Chris um, from Open Genius. Uh, both of them are really good friends, and it was quite a loss. What do businesses and universities need to do to remove what I would refer to as this skills gap? Um, there aren't people out there that are probably teaching it the way that it should be. Now, I do see design thinking at Stanford, right? And I'd say that's probably the closest thing that I've seen. Um, and, I, and I'm in that community, right? I'm, I'm with all these graphic facilitators and people that are trying to solve these problems. But in your estimation, how do we get that gap fixed? Yeah, and I, I think there is a big gap. And I think if you look at uh, conventional curricula across universities and in graduate schools, there isn't a problem solving 101. And if you could imagine that every freshman should be taking a course that helps them do the kind of systematic thinking, understanding what the problem is, taking the problem apart, applying analytic approaches to solve the problem, and then resynthesizing the problem so that you can tell the solution as a story. That's the core of problem solving. Um, that every undergraduate and graduate student should get that kind of training. Um, Very few universities teach that way. Uh, Even though we have a good basis in, as you just pointed out, design thinking, it's taught in very few places systematically. Um, Similarly, we have good foundation in decision theory, in engineering, and even in the scientific method in the sciences. But few people are taught it as a core skill. And so while we have bits and pieces of problem solving, no one has taught us how to do problem solving as a systematic process um, rather than some kind of one-off. I'm thrilled to see that um, uh, Stanford, which is often in the vanguard around creativity, is teaching design thinking. I wonder how many of their students, including undergraduate students, are actually getting that. Well, I I can't say for certain, but Bill Burnett and Dave um, both are doing an amazing job in that department and have now taken it to a platform called Creative Live. And it's not just design thinking because, you know, they they say, hey, these freshmen come in and they really uh, think they have an oyster, right? The point is, is that they're using this to actually have them design their life. And I think 
look, I read the book. Our, I thought it was terrific. Yeah, our life is a problem as well, right? In other words, you just said at the beginning of this, this isn't just all about business. This is about how we use these critical thinking skills and design thinking and problem solving to do that. Now, one of uh, at the heart of this book is your seven step process called bulletproof problem solving. Can you define the seven steps real briefly for the listeners so that they know what those are? Because I did find them to be quite useful. Yeah. And uh, we think essentially any problem can be taken apart this way. So our first step is to make sure you've defined the problem carefully. And I know that sounds uh, childish, but our, in our experience, many people surge off into data analysis, particularly to the, the young generation today, without actually stopping to ask, what are the parameters of my problem? What are the areas that are go or no go? What level of precision is required and how quickly does it, is the decision required? If you are working for somebody else, and most people start out that way, you've got to make sure you understand what your ultimate decision maker's criteria are. The second step for us is really critical, and that is to use logic trees or some other kind of structure to take the problem apart so that you can work with manageable pieces or chunks. Only then can you begin to say which parts of the problem are more important than others. And we found that if you want to be efficient in problem solving and get things done quickly, you need to proceed to a third step, which is to prioritize. Many of us have, been, have experienced um, early in our careers, you know, that, that sort of desire to boil the ocean, to go down every path in problem solving, but then you never get things done. So one of the things that Rob and I learned in McKinsey is how important it is to prioritize. Once you've done that, you can actually set out a work plan, that fourth step, and then bring analytic techniques to bear. One of the things we often see is, especially when you have powerful software approaches um, you know, in machine learning or in, in uh, statistical analysis, people get into analysis before they've ever done the, the disaggregation and the thinking about the problem. Once you've done your analysis, you can then synthesize those pieces together and then do the final step, which is to communicate in a compelling way. We found in many analytic firms, people are good at doing the analysis, but they're terrible at communicating their findings. You'll never get resources in the world. You'll never be able to get ahead in your job if you can't synthesize what you found and tell a really compelling story. Those are the seven steps. Well, and Charles, that is really important. I think the issue here is, you know, a lot of people, I, I know you deal in, uh, with startups and getting funding. And that's part of the thing that, that you've been involved with during the course of your life. And again, the distillation of identifying a problem and then finding the solution by doing these, bullet, what you call bulletproof problem solving, is a key to making a crystal clear presentation to somebody to say, hey, look, here's our problem. Here's how we defined it. Here's how we see a solution. You know, investors are going to give you money when you're very clear about stuff like that. And, and not all the time. I mean, that isn't... Uh, an absolute, but the value is there. Now you use live cases in this book very effectively, lots of them to actually talk about it. One is the Sydney airport case um, yeah. and that they didn't have adequate capacity at that airport. I didn't know until I read your book, it's the second busiest airport. And I was just there uh, about three weeks ago and I'm thinking, this is a busy airport and, and it is busy. It It was, I agree that it was busy, but I didn't think it was busier than LAX or something like that. Can you explain the case study and how bulletproof, uh, uh, bulletproof problem solving 
was used in this problem just briefly because I thought it was it was very good case study. Sure. Yeah, and as as you said, uh, Greg, we use more than thirty different case studies. Some we draw from business and some from life because what we want to show is every single one of these problems is actually amenable to those same seven steps. Uh, in McKinsey, we used to use the um, Sydney Airport example as a test um, for potential hires. And one of the reasons we liked it is you didn't need to be a business person to think about it. So, you know, you can imagine uh, if, you, if you have an airport and you've got this question about will capacity be adequate, the first cut you would want to do when you take that apart is into supply and demand. How, what is going to happen with demand over time? Is that going to continue increasing? And is there any reason why it might not? And what's supply? And of course, in an airport, um, the critical element of supply is pretty mathematical. You have the number of runways you have, the capacity per runway, and whether you use the, 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 the utilization of that runway, which is essentially how much spacing there is between planes. Demand you would define further as what is the total market demand in the region and the Sydney market share? What we found is even with that simple disaggregation into supply and demand and into, into three factors for each of those, you can begin to get an insight into how you could improve the, the um, situation at Sydney Airport, which at the time of the case was uh, massive delays because of overrunning, uh, demand overrunning supply. And Again, with our candidates, and this, this is uh, uh, when we were working at the management consulting firm, McKinsey & Company, we expected them to be able to do that simple disaggregation. What we discovered in Sydney is if we stretch the operating hours, which is affects runway utilization, and we're able to increase the number of planes per hour because of decreased spacing, and by having the larger capacity planes that were um, increasing at that time, Sydney actually didn't need to run out of runway capacity as quickly as some planners had thought. Um, what we did discover, of course, is within a few years, that capacity bind occurred again, and uh, Sydney did add that additional runway. And that's probably why you didn't experience it as a terrible um, place, the way sometimes LAX or JFK is. Yeah, but I think the point is the study that you've provided, the studies in the book are really yep. quite revealing to, hey, what is this bulletproof problem solving? You know, you got this model and yeah. you put it together and you said, here's how this model applies. And that's what I liked was, you know, the process that you've gone. And I want my listeners to know as well that there are lots of graphics in the book um, and it makes it easy to follow. And I love that. And Wiley actually, is, those guys are masters at doing this kind of thing. Anybody who's picked up a Wiley book. Now, you state that the problem of disaggregation is at the heart of the process. Now, why is dissecting the problem, in your estimation, one of the areas where teams kind of fall short or that, they're, that they don't get it right or things go wrong in actually the problem solving? Because I think um, that the, the, what happens when you have big problems, complicated ones, like what could we do about climate change or how do we think about obesity? Um, or, you know, how do I improve the profitability of my company? Your, your mind immediately becomes bound up with all kinds of preconceptions that you've heard. And this is where people tend to then devolve to arguments that they've heard on television or they've read in newspapers, which is not problem solving. What we found 
is if you can disaggregate a problem, you can lay open its core and you can see what's going on, right? And so we just use that very simple example of an airport where you've got this terrible bind in an airport, but when you all of a sudden do a cleave, that is you take it apart, the way you'd cleave a diamond, even as into something as simple as supply and demand, you can begin to get insight on the problem. It's almost like, can you get a screwdriver underneath and get some leverage on the problem? With more complex problems, usually we disaggregate into something more complicated than supply and demand. As you know, there are 30 examples from the book. Some are as complicated as, you know, how can you save uh, wild Pacific salmon or how do you fight obesity? But each of these actually devolves quite naturally into logic trees that allow you to work on each lever one at a time. First to determine, is that lever important? Is it something that we can change? And is it something that has a big impact? And then analytically, how do we adjust that lever? That's why disaggregation is so important. Well, again, those examples that are in the book really help to emphasize how to use your process. And I think that is important for the listeners. Anybody's going to pick this book up. And one of them that kind of stood out for me was this real case in your book about your study in the Battle of the Hardware Kings. Um, mm. Hechinger versus uh, Home Depot. I don't know the other hardware store, but I do know Home Depot real well because I'm usually there every uh, Saturday or Sunday buying something from them. Can you speak about deductive logic trees? Because that's where you used a deductive logic tree. And I look at those trees almost like mind maps, to be honest with you. Um, and they really are. The, I mean, when you when you look at a deductive logic tree, the only difference is, is that you're drilling down a lot further than you might in a mind map. But the reality is, is how do you guys uh, address those deductive logic trees and how can they be used to help us in problem solving? Yeah, well, and um, uh, it's, a, it's a great case. It was one from very early on in my career. And the reason you don't know Heckinger is because they cease to exist. Um, and they, they went out of business because they didn't know how to address the competitive onslaught of Home Depot. When we, when we started this work back in uh, the early 1980s, Heckinger was the dominant player on the Eastern seaboard, and they were riding high. And they didn't realize that there was a new kind of business model that was coming after them. And what we showed to Heckinger management by using a very simple deductive logic tree called a return on capital tree, um, is that their business model was different from and not as effective as the one at Home Depot. And I'll just touch on a couple things because I know we don't have too much time, but return on capital is the income that you get from your operations divided by the net assets that you've used to make your operations. And income, of course, is based on what your selling price is versus your costs. And your assets depend on basically how quickly you're able to make those assets turn over. What we found using this deductive logic tree is that Home Depot had lower prices, which led to higher revenues, but still had good margins because it used a unique form of stocking of their stores and unique form of transportation called full truck load and cross stocking that allowed it to have a substantially um, uh, more attractive proposition to the customer than Heckinger. Simultaneously, it had a store design that you're fully familiar with from your Home, from your home Depot store 
in San Diego that, that didn't have a back room and utilized much larger floor space. That allowed them to have higher asset utilization while they had um, lower selling prices and lower cost. That model was unbeatable, and that's why Home Depot's in every town now. We showed that using this simple deductive logic tree called a return on capital tree, which starts with just those first two branches, which is what's your profit over your asset turns. Well, I think anybody who's going to pick up this book is really, uh, I wouldn't say they're all engineers, but they're people who most likely on an everyday uh, basis are problem solvers, right? They're yeah. problem solving in their businesses. Uh, they may be problem solving other places, maybe nonprofits. I could see this working. There's lots of big nonprofits that could use this. Now you speak about biases as it relates to problem solving. And we all know we have biases. The, the key is, is that, you know, how do we address those biases? And usually when you get in teams, uh, that's when you start to hear a lot of biases. Um, I, I actually listened to a full talk last night by Benet Brown. Vulnerability creates a courage. And I keep thinking about, hey, when you're in problem solving, if you're not following her advice, you're never going to solve a problem. Um, so what advice would you give regarding underlying biases and how to remove those biases from the situation? Yeah, boy, and you know, we all know from reading um, Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow, that these biases affect us in so many ways that are unconscious. Uh, and I, I think there are very concrete ways for humans to avoid those biases. The first you've already said, which is when you work in teams, you already have more eyes looking to, to make sure that you're not following some old pattern, like a confirmation bias or an anchoring bias. What we discovered, and this is over many years in different um, companies and in different nonprofits, is that diversity really matters. So having different ages on your team, having people from uh, different family backgrounds and even different ethnic backgrounds actually often creates the kind of perspectives that avoid us getting into ruts, uh, which is the same way we've solved this before. We always try multiple um, cuts at those logic trees that I described, and we use team brainstorming practices as a way of fighting bias. So we would often have people um, use yellow sticky notes up on these logic trees um, to vote for the, um, the elements of the tree they thought were most important for us to investigate. And one of the things we do is always make sure the senior people go last so that people are not following seniority as one of those fundamental um, sources of bias. I'm going to give you one more example, which is um, constructive co confrontation. We often would assign two, you know, just break the team in half and call one team red team and one team blue team and have each one argue the alternative hypothesis. And that kind of, um, it's almost like a courtroom argument, forces people to think from the opposite of what their inbuilt um, hypothesis is, which is often where their biases are. So by role playing, you can actually get people out of their normal um, ruts and biases. So those are just a few ways well, we make our teams it, work. No, it's, it's great um, direction to give to anybody listening to this podcast that says, Hey, look, um, we, a lot of people don't even recognize it and then they allow it to happen. I think the room needs to be cleared first, right? And yeah. people need to understand. Um, and like you said, management has to go last. I mean, the reality is because we know 
out of all the people in the room, they're probably sitting there with the biggest biases. Yep. Um, they've come in with an agenda. Usually their egos are big. Uh, I think Steve Jobs used to say, even though he's one of the toughest people to work for, you know, when you come into the team meetings, uh, remove your ego. Because the reality is we're trying to get a product developed here. Um, and we all know it doesn't matter who it is, the ego can get in the way. So one last question to kind of wrap this up. And sure. it's a question about questions. Uh, you have question-based problem solving. And one of the things I've become a master at is asking people questions. After almost uh, 715 podcasts, you got to be good at creating questions. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, <coughs> question-based problem solving seems like a quick way that people could come to solutions regarding a problem. Can you explain this pro approach a little bit? And then we'll put a ribbon on our podcast. Absolutely. So Rob and I like two kinds of question-based problem solving, and we often do this before we get into fancy analytic techniques. So the first one you might call a Sherlock Holmes approach when you've got a problem, which is to ask those W's, um, which is who, what, where, when, and why. And to that, we would often add how. And that kind of root cause analysis, which is where you're asking those core questions about where something came from, is often a good starting point even before you do that analytic tree. The other kind of questioning, question-based problem solving we love, and you probably have done this one a lot in your podcasts, is what's called five whys, which is an approach that was uh, uh, made famous by Japanese manufacturing. They ask the first question, why are we losing market share? But they don't stop there. They ask the second question, which is, are we losing market share across all of our products or just a few? And then they ask a third why, is it because of price or a sense of value? And then maybe a fourth why, which is it about customer service or something to do with the product. By using the successive whys until they get right to the very last question where there's, where there's no further question, they know they've got to the root cause of the problem. And we find that's a really neat technique that you can, it's portable. You don't need a computer. You don't need a big team. You don't need fancy analytic technologies like machine learning. You can get to the base causes of a lot of problems just by asking those questions. Well, what you're saying is you have to be a sleuth, right? And exactly. uh, like Sherlock Holmes, you were the sleuth. And um, like Columbo, just one more question, just one more question, he used to always say as he was leaving the room. And that was usually the clue that solved the problem, right? And I think that is the beauty. If you start asking enough questions with inside yourself, you can come up with solutions to your own problems. Um, some of the most famous psychologists out there literally use that technique. Um, and that isn't Freud and that isn't Gestalt. That's basically the way that you can get to defining the problems. And you've done a magnificent job of informing our listeners today about your new book called Bulletproof Problem Solving, The One Skill That Changes Everything. Um, we've been on with Charles Kahn and Robert McLean is the co-author of this book as well. If you're looking for a book that will assist you in learning how to solve problems, I would definitely advise that you go to Amazon. We're going to put a link in the blog so that you can purchase this book and learn more about their six-step process because I really do think that the book is worth just the bulletproof problem-solving six steps alone. And 
Is there a website that you want to direct them to? I know you have the Oxford website, but you also have charleskahn.com. Um, I just wanted to make sure we were going to be putting them in the right direction. Uh, sure. Get more information. So where would you like them to go, Charles? Yeah, well, um, uh, as of tomorrow, you can go to www.bulletproofproblemsolving.com and uh, you'll get some case studies drawn from the book. Uh, you'll get our bios and you'll get um, some additional materials on how to think about solving great problems. Awesome. So the offer for everybody listening is you, by the time this podcast comes out, you are going to have a website called bulletproofproblemsolving.com and he's got some free giveaways there. Um, so you can go and download those, uh, probably read a couple of chapters of the book. I don't know if they're going to be giving those away or not, but the reality is usually they do. And so if not, just go to Amazon and you can just thumb through the index of the book. Uh, you can learn a little bit more there. Charles, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with our listeners today. Um, talking about your new book, Bulletproof Problem Solving, The One Skill That Changes Everything. Thanks so much. Thank you, Greg. It was a real pleasure. <laughs>